Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 21st, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program. Your source, each Friday, for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show reviews two Ninth Circuit cases, one a recent memorandum ruling with important ramifications for food mislabeling litigation, Another, a just-argued employment class action presenting an issue of first impression regarding state labor standards and retail employee call-in shifts. Michael Singer of Cohalan, Corey, and Singer will join first to chat about the latter case, Casa's first Victoria's Secret. In that action, the retail clothier would schedule employees, like plaintiff Myra Casas, into call-in shifts, which required the employees to make themselves available to work those shifts, but to first call ahead of time to see, depending on customer traffic, whether their services were needed. Often, because Victoria's Secret would allegedly overstaff shifts, the store would tell scheduled employees to stay home, leaving them uncompensated for the time they had been required to make themselves available for work, and likewise leaving them responsible for footing child or elder care arrangements the employees perhaps had engaged to guarantee they could work the scheduled hours. Casas and her class challenged this policy in California court as violative of state labor standards. Under the Class Action Fairness Act, the matter was removed to federal court where it met with a dismissal before a district judge. The Ninth Circuit panel at oral arguments was skeptical both that Victoria's Secret's call-in policy passes muster and that a federal court is the proper venue for applying California labor policy in this novel context. Michael Singer, who filed an amicus brief in support of the class, will echo both of those concerns. Then, Neil Martyr, a partner with Aiken Gump, will review Brazil v. Dole, a memorandum food mislabeling opinion from the Ninth Circuit. There, Dole Food Company labeled certain fruit products as all-natural, though they contained certain synthetic ingredients. Plaintiff Chad Brazil brought a class action alleging the labels could be misleading to a reasonable consumer. Brazil met summary judgment at the district court, which also decertified his damages class, but... His claim was partially revived by the appellate panel, which attempted, which affirmed the decertification, but reversed summary judgment as to Brazil's individual claim against Dole. Mr. Martyr will help make sense of this mixed ruling, which both demonstrates that companies must be careful when labeling products all natural, and also that plaintiffs in these types of actions face a tough challenge in demonstrating how damages can be cohesively calculated across a large class of individuals. Before we get to my guests, let me first end, as always, Reminding that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into the program. There should be a link to a short true-false test that appears on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, let's hear from Michael Singer on the case of Casas vs. Victoria's Secret. We're joined now by Michael Singer, managing partner of Cohalan, Corey, and Singer, whose principal practice is class action and complex litigation, including employee class actions like the one we'll discuss in just a second. Mr. Singer, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're discussing Casas vs. Victoria's Secret, a case before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that heard its argument last week. There's a particular scheduling policy used by Victoria's Secret that's at issue here, namely call-in shifts. Can you tell me the nature of call-in shifts and, and what problems they could cause employees like the, the plaintiff and members of the, the class that she represents? Sure. There are two different types of work schedules that Victoria's Secret was employing. A typical type of work scheduling where an employee is required to actually be on the store premises to begin their work day. And then a second type of scheduling, which is what we're talking about here, and it's called call-in scheduling. And the way that works is the employee has a requirement. These are part-time employees. They're working five days, typically 15 to 20 hours a week. And the company says, here's what we're going to do. We want you to call us the day that you're going to work. It needs to be at least two hours before we want you to start. And then we'll tell you at that time whether or not we want you to come in for work. So what that means is that maybe there's going to be work that day. Maybe there's not going to be work that day. And the obvious problems that are associated with that is unpredictability. How can a worker know for sure that they're going to be earning income that day? How can a worker know they're going to have work that day? How can they be certain what their life is going to be like? And then there is the consequence that they can't plan anything else that day. 
they're really restricting themselves because they have to be ready, willing, and able to report in to the premises if they're told, yes, you've got work this day. They cannot get on with their life by scheduling work someplace else. They can't participate in uh, any types of other activities that they might want to do. They might, uh, for example, they can't plan on going to take some courses somewhere. They can't schedule appointments. They can't make plans with their family or friends. Uh, they've got to deal with things such as arranging child care or elder care, and maybe that's happened in advance, and now they're being told that they don't have to go through with that because they're not going to be getting any work that day. So there's a whole list of problems that are associated with the unpredictability of not having a certain work schedule. It sounds like all the flexibility in this arrangement is on the side of the employer. As you say, the employee, when they call in, it's not as if they can see if there's work and then choose whether or not to, to come work. They, they do, in fact, need to be available to, to work that shift if it comes to pass that it's available. And then if it's not, then they're just sort of out of luck. Right. Uh, there, is, there is zero benefit to the employee. All of the purpose of creating an arrangement like this is to benefit the employer's business. And these days with the advent of some pretty sophisticated computer algorithmic scheduling, companies can tell from the flow of business uh, at a particular time whether employees are going to be needed or not, and that just benefits the employer to be able to control labor costs, which are often considered to be the, uh, the, 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 most, the highest controllable uh, cost is labor costs. So if they can control those costs, with scheduling, then they are able to maximize profits. But the employees are the ones who suffer. So the, the claim here is that the, the policy of call and shifts violates state labor code, in particular, the Industrial Welfare Commission's Wage Order 7, uh, an order from the 1940s um, that deals with issues like this where employees might be required to, to report for work that may or may not be available. Could you tell me about the, the prescriptions of this wage order? Sure, and there is a differentiation between the labor code and the wage orders. The labor code are the state statutes that are enacted by the state legislature. The wage orders are regulations that are promulgated by the Industrial Welfare Commission over time, although the commission's not funded right now. But the wage orders are still valid. There are 18 wage orders, 17 plus a minimum wage order, all 17 of those wage orders contain this particular provision, which is called the reporting time law. And it says specifically that each workday an employee is required to report for work and does report, but is not put to work or is furnished less than half of the employee's usual or scheduled workday, the employee shall be paid for half the usual or scheduled day's work with a minimum of two hours being paid. So what that means is that if a, an employee is ready, willing, and able and reports for work, they have to be given that work or, as an alternative, paid for half the amount of work that they're given at a minimum of two hours. But here, Victoria's Secret would not compensate employees if they called in and their, their shift was not available. Exactly. That's the whole crux of the dispute is what does it mean to report for work? Victoria's Secret took the position reporting for work means being physically present on the premises. And calling in for work does not constitute reporting for work in terms of their obligation being triggered under the wage order to provide either half the amount of work or commensurate pay. Now, on that particular claim, the district court, after this case was removed from state court, granted dismissal for defendants. Why did the, the district court here rule that this policy did not violate the, uh, the wage order? Pretty much just bought Victoria's Secret argument. Just said, well, uh, I suppose minds could differ on this, but as far as I'm concerned, reporting means showing up and being there physically and in person. Therefore, there is no claim, and the court was... Uh, simply not online with the concept of what kind of other circumstances might show up where an employee would be considered to be reporting for work and uh, in need of being compensated with reporting pay. Then the case is certified for interlocutory appeal to the Ninth Circuit, 
And the appellants in their brief note that this is an issue of first impression, this question over call-in shifts. Is that true? Is it because it's sort of a relatively novel tactic used by employers? Is this the first time the, the issue has reached the Court of Appeal? Absolutely. That is the whole reason why we'll talk about in a moment the fact that probably the Ninth Circuit is not going to be the appellate body that even decides this issue. It has never come up before in a court of appeal opinion. I've never even seen it in a trial court posture, certainly not in a district court trial court opinion where the federal district courts are now uh, presenting written opinions when they decide issues on motions to dismiss like this. But it is a relatively new practice that has been developed predominantly in the retail industry, and that's why there hasn't been any sort of court of appeal opinion on it, and that's why it is an issue of first impression, although it is something that has been getting a lot of press over the last year and some direct input from state attorneys general as a consequence of which many of these retail companies who have employed the practice have discontinued doing it. A number of companies, Abercrombie & Fitch, Gap, Banana Republic, Old Navy, J. Crew, Urban Outfitters, Bed Bath, and beyond, and even Victoria's Secret, at least in New York, have discontinued this call-in practice. So as you say, the crux of this appeal is the question of whether calling in and, and making yourself available to work, calling in and seeing if you if there is work available, um, whether that triggers the requirement of, of the provision that the employer must pay at least half half a day's wage. The plaintiffs and appellants here, what are their claims? Why, why do they believe that um, they should prevail in this appeal? Well, really, it's it's based for the most part on the purposes of the reporting pay provision as well as trying to develop a common sense understanding of what that term report means. And that common sense understanding has to be based on dictionary definitions and general usage and that sort of thing. But we know that the purposes underlying the reporting pay provisions are twofold. One is to encourage proper notice and scheduling practices so that employees know when they're going to work, when they're scheduled to work. And the other purpose of the reporting pay provision is to compensate employees who do report for work and are denied the opportunity to earn wages. So that's the context that we have to use to decide whether this particular practice is non-compliant with the wage order such that compensation is going to be appropriate for that. And then when we look to the dictionary, when we look for what it means to report for work as opposed to reporting to work, that creates a pretty important distinction where reporting to indicates that motion where you have to actually go somewhere and appear, whereas reporting for, which is how the wage order is actually worded, indicates more of a readiness. And when I was working on the amicus brief for this, I did some minor internet dictionary searching and found a definition of report to mean to present one's self. So in that sense, you have this call-in practice really complying meeting that statutory definition of report because these workers are presenting themselves when they call in saying, I'm ready, willing, and able to come in. And then the company is saying, you are, but we're not going to provide that work for you, nor are we going to compensate you as we're required to under the wage orders. That interpretation seems to relate to kind of the the substance of what's at issue here, the fact that the employee has blocked off several hours and made them available for the employer, it seems like it sort of narrows it too much and to just ask whether actually physically going to one place or not is what's at issue. It seems like the, the several hours you've dedicated to the employer seems like it's more important. Well, right. There's no practical functional difference between an employee who sets out that time to work between that as a matter of calling in or as a matter of transporting uh him or herself to the workplace and saying, okay, I'm ready here versus I'm ready at the home on the telephone or whatever. There's no functional difference there because the time has already been segregated 
and the employee has no other use of that time. I should say no other use of the time, but has a lot of restriction in terms of the ability to work and make appointments, et cetera. Throughout the oral arguments here, there was some debate as to um, whether this this wage order could be interpreted differently over time. So, for instance, even if in, in the 1940s, when it was published by the Industrial Welfare Commission, even if at that point, perhaps they, they did think that reporting required a physical movement to a workplace, simply because calling in to work wasn't the sort of thing that employers and employees engaged in, but now it's fairly common. And so the interpretation of the term should reflect that that technological development. Uh, what's the argument uh, on this point that because of technological advancements, um, certain labor provisions must be interpreted a little bit differently? Well, the primary argument is that we're not just going to look at what happened at the Industrial Welfare Commission whenever this particular reporting pay provision was initially promulgated. And I don't know if that was in the 40s or when the wage orders first were established in the uh, 19. 20s, 1916, I believe, some of the first wage orders. Uh, We're not only going to look there because we're going to be at the Court of Appeal analysis level where we have to look to the broad public policies and statutory interpretation guidelines. So for labor code provisions, for provisions regulating the hours and working conditions of employees, there is a very, very strong public policy supporting employee rights, supporting interpretation of statutes and regulations in favor of employee protections. So that sort of broad public policy with all legislation being interpreted broadly and construed toward protecting employees rather than for the benefit of employers, that's what's going to be the overall context in which whatever court of appeal gets to this is going to be analyzing this particular provision. So I was one of the employees on a pretty infamous case, famous case called Brinker involving the California Supreme Court's first analysis of what an employer's obligations are with regard to providing meal and rest periods. And we were able, as part of our preparation for that case, to locate an archive of over a 100 boxes of Industrial Welfare Commission documents, records, transcripts, earlier versions of wage orders. So when that act is undertaken by the attorneys and by the court analyzing this, the Court of Appeal, there will be a wide context of Industrial Welfare Commission discussion and analysis that led to the reporting pay provision, and that will then be addressed in terms of the broad, broad manner in which regulations and legislation will be interpreted favoring employees. Yeah, I think... To that, the, the plaintiffs and appellants have cited that the more context you look at and the more legislative history you might look at, and you, if you look at the, the purpose of this provision, it, it seems to cut in the direction that, that this sort of practice is largely what the provision was was enacted to, to try to work against, just keeping employees on the hook for work that they may or may not actually be able to perform. Right, and I think you'll be able to do that by simply taking apart the word report for, the words report for, that's how the court's going to be able to integrate the changes in technology, the changes in transportation, the changes in the workplace. There are a lot of different ways that we perform work now that we were not doing uh, whenever this was promulgated, the 40s or whenever. And that doesn't mean that we're stuck in the 1940s definition of what reporting for work means. We're able to analyze what reporting for work means in terms of the broad application of that in today's workplace. You mentioned it a couple of times now, um, which appeals court will render a decision on this question. Obviously, it's, it's presently in a federal appeals court, but it's pretty squarely a question of state law are talking about state labor provisions being interpreted for the first time. And at the moment, it's going to be interpreted by a federal court. Um, though, of course, the, the case was filed in state court. The judges at oral argument, and particularly Judge Paez, made this point pretty strongly that perhaps it shouldn't be the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal court, determining for the first time a pretty important issue of California law. Why 
exactly is this question before a federal court and not before a California court? Well, it's almost certain that it will be sent over to the California Supreme Court at least to give the California Supreme Court the opportunity to address the question. The reason why it's in federal court in the first place is because of something called the Class Action Fairness Act, which is, from the plaintiff's perspective, a complete misnomer, and it has nothing to do with fairness as it relates to the particular cases involved. And this is an act that was enacted by the United States legislature in, I think it was 2004, maybe it was 2006. It was put forward by a senator who was not open to an understanding of which actions were appropriately subject to the Class Action Fairness Act and which were not. And the Class Action Fairness Act states that class action cases of a certain size of at least 100 employees and at least $5 million at issue, which is very, very broadly interpreted, the $5 million threshold, those cases, if filed in state courts, can be removed by the defendant companies into federal court. And federal courts are much less favorable toward class action procedure than state courts are, and they are much more likely to deny class certification status where uh, state superior courts are less inclined to deny them. Uh, in federal court, there is Rule 23. That's how class actions are certified in federal court, and it's really just another rule. There are numerous rules of federal civil procedure. In California, for example, there is a public policy that supports the use of class actions for bringing together employees, consumers, and others to have collective relief in one proceeding. So because of this act, which has swept in far more than it really should have, this case and many others, purely an intrastate California class action involving only California employees and only California law had no business being removed, but under the CAFA statute, the way it's currently framed, it was removable and indeed removed. I mean, you say that this is a one case among many that have this happen to it that involves an intrastate issue and then ends up in, in a federal courtroom. Um, the judges at oral argument seemed to agree. They expressed some exasperation that they've had to handle a lot of cases that resemble this one. Um, is there some argument to be made, and perhaps the judges are suggesting it, that the Class Action Fairness Act isn't at the moment making logical sense, isn't judici judicially efficient? Well, I think that's true. I think there are, there are plenty of federal judges who would be happy if the Class Action Fairness Act didn't exist or was repealed. But my experience with federal judges is that they feel very strongly this is the law and we live with it and they treat it uh, very seriously. They will not just grant it. We can file motions to remand cases from federal court to state court if we can establish that the amount of controversy is not $5 million, uh, that sort of if there's not a local defendant exception, that sort of thing. Uh, if there is a local defendant exception, it should be remanded. But those, the judges take these cases extremely seriously and will not grant those motions unless it's absolutely certain that to do so is appropriate. But on the other hand, federal judges are very, very willing, it seems. Uh, I don't know about very, very, but the Ninth Circuit, at least, has already, in the context of California wage and hour cases, certified several questions back to the California Supreme Court for the California Supreme Court to decide. There are at least two others that I can think of, Piuetti versus Time Warner, which was a case discussing when commission sales can be uh, allocated for the purposes of assessing the overtime exemption. I won't bother going into the details of that, but that was decided by the California Supreme Court on uh, request from the Ninth Circuit. And then there's another one pending right now, Mendoza versus Nordstrom, which involves an interpretation of seventh-day overtime and scheduling by companies 
of uh, employees working seven days in a row. So there's really no harm for the Ninth Circuit to make the request to the California Supreme Court, hey, this is an issue of first impression. It's purely state law. It's something that you folks should consider. And if the California Supreme Court says no, they'll be in no different position. So it, it's pretty certain that they will they will do so both because it's an issue that the California courts should consider and also because of the sentiment that was so freely expressed girl argument saying, why shouldn't we just send this over to the California Supreme Court? Yeah, it certainly seems like a, a very potentially likely outcome. Then if we um, unwind that a little bit further, say that the question is certified, what do you think the, the likelihood would be that the California Supreme Court would, would want to weigh in, and how do you think they might feel about this particular question? Well, I think they will definitely want to weigh in. I think if the Ninth Circuit approaches the California Supreme Court on this, especially with the vast number of retailers who have been employing this practice, I think the California Supreme Court will want to look at it, would be interested, as they have done in many cases, in analyzing the wage orders and going through that vast uh, regulatory history. So I, I do think they will want to look at this. I do think they will want to take the time to interpret this language report for that is subject to very various meanings. Uh, how they'll come down on it, will they rule in such a way that is employee protective or business protective is very hard to say. But it, it appears and it feels to practitioners on both sides that the Supreme Court is pragmatic and will look at the impact of what their ruling is and will not just issue blanket rulings uh, that may have huge unintended impact on the business community and will do its best to put out an intelligent ruling that respects the history behind the laws but is also pragmatic in terms of what the impact will be in the workplace for both the uh, employers and employees. Perhaps one last one then, could you outline to me some of those impacts that, that could occur depending on which whichever way the case comes down, be it a more employer-friendly or employee-friendly ruling? Obviously, everything that the plaintiffs, the appellants are arguing in this case is the impact that they are trying to avoid. If the Supreme Court comes down and says, yes, employers can go ahead with this practice and it's too bad for employees. There will not be any predictability, and that's just going to be the way it is because we're stuck with this statute, and here's how we interpret it. And that's obviously the main impact that the workers and practitioners who represent workers are trying to avoid. And then there'll be an examination, maybe in the opinion, maybe internally, I don't know, of just how vast an impact this would be on businesses and how much of the I guess how much economic detriment could result from a ruling that required employers to pay reporting pay if they want to continue these call-in scheduling practices. I think as a practical matter, a ruling in favor of employees would mean that employers would simply stop the practice and then there would be no economic impact and we would go back to what is a true fair scheduling, which is paying the reporting pay as long as any employee calls in or physically presents him or herself for work. Okay, well, it will certainly be an interesting case to continue to follow a lot of interesting questions and, and interesting procedure as well. Mr. Michael Singer of Cohalen, Corey, and Singer, thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk about it with us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Once again, that was Michael Singer of Cohalen, Corey, and Singer on the case of Casas vs. Victoria's Secret. Let's move now to my discussion with Neil Martyr from Aiken Gump. Happy to be joined now by Neil Martyr, a partner with Aiken Gump, whose practice focuses on a, a wide range of high-stakes business litigation. Mr. Martyr, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Good morning. So we're talking about Brazil first dull packaged foods today, a memorandum, unpublished opinion out of the Ninth Circuit, but one that certainly has some important impacts potentially on food labeling litigation. 
Um, so before we get into the ruling, let me talk just a bit about the underlying facts here. Who is this plaintiff, Chad Brazil, and what was his problem with the labeling on these dole packaged fruit containers? Uh, Brazil was a, uh, a purchaser of the dole fruit products who basically alleged that dole was engaging in misleading or deceptive advertising by labeling the products all natural, as we see so many uh, companies, in, particularly in California, the food and beverage industry, uh, attempting to do uh, to attract uh, consumers to their products. And Brazil claimed that it was misleading to label the products, uh, the fruit products, all natural because they contained uh, two synthetic acids, which, uh, according to Brazil, uh, was misleading to consumers. As a result, he brought claims in, in federal district court. What uh, specific claims did he did he file, and uh, what uh, what evidence did he sort of bring to bear to support his claim? Why exactly um, were those those chemicals causing the harm that he sought to to remedy? Well, like many consumers uh, who are bringing these type of claims, bro, uh, uh, Brazil sued Dole in federal court. Um, alleging that uh, Dole violated not only California's unfair competition law, but also uh, its false advertising law and laws to protect consumers called the Consumer Legal Remedies Act. And as I said, his basic allegation was the same to support all three claims that Dole falsely and misleadingly marketed several of its products as all natural, when in fact those products contained synthetic ingredients um, and, uh, you know, he relied primarily on the label itself, um, attempted to support his claims through statements made on uh, Dole's uh, website and also um, on, other, um, on other evidence uh, that he claimed supported his theory that uh, Dole was engaging in misleading uh, conduct. He was hoping to, to represent a class of plaintiffs in this litigation, and I understand that trial court, two different classes were certified, right? One related to an injunction and one also applying to um, damages. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. He, uh, he, he tried to seek certification under Rule 23b2, which is the rule uh, permitting certification for an injunctive relief class, and also under Rule 23b, seeking certification of a damages class and attempted to get the uh, district court, Judge Cole, to certify both classes um, to support his, uh, his claims. I believe one of those classes was eventually decertified. What, what, uh, which class was that and why? Yeah, Judge, uh, Judge Coe uh, did certify an injunctive relief class, but, uh, and initially a, uh, a damages class, but later decertified the damages class, um, finding that Brazil had not established damages um, or at least put up a, a sufficient model to establish damages or that they could be calculated on a class-wide basis through common proof. And as a result of that, uh, Judge Coe decertified uh, the damages class. And we'll get into that a bit more later as to how these damages could or could not be calculated across the potential class here. But sticking with the trial court, how are the rest of the, the claims disposed of by the district court? At the pleading stage, Dole was successful in convincing Judge Coe to dismiss with prejudice Brazil's claim that Dole engaged in the sale of uh, illegal products. The illegal products claim was based primarily on information on Dole's website and not on the label of the product. And the court found that uh, Brazil was unable to establish that claim based on um, a concession, if you will, by Brazil that um, there was never any reliance on the information on the website. So that claim was disposed of at the pleading stage. The parties then engaged in discovery and Dole filed a summary judgment motion and Judge Coe granted that motion as to the false advertising claim, finding that uh, Brazil had failed to prove that Dole's use of the term all natural was deceptive as a matter of law. Um, Judge Coe, looking at the same evidence that the Ninth Circuit eventually reviewed, uh, found that uh, reasonable consumers would not be misled as a matter of law. And, and on that point, 
the trial court was reversed. But first, let's go ahead and get to the, the points of the case that were affirmed. So that claim that you mentioned, the illegal products claim, that was affirmed by the panel. What exactly had been yeah. the meat of that claim? Why did the plaintiff claim that, that Dole had violated the law in, in this particular context relating to illegal products? Well, this is the uh, unlawful element of the um, 17200 um, unfair competition claim. Um, and their basic argument was that um, that the manner in which the product was uh, not only labeled, but referenced and disclosed on Dole's website was unlawful and therefore violated the unfair or unlawful competition laws in California. The Ninth Circuit affirmed three things. It affirmed the district court's granting of summary judgment on that illegal products claim. It uh, also affirmed the district court's decertification of the damages class under 23B3. And finally, it... um, it held that the proper measure of damages was the price premium. What Brazil was able to accomplish on appeal was the Ninth Circuit's essentially reversal of the district court's granting a summary judgment as to Brazil's individual claim for deceptive advertising. Um, the Ninth Circuit disagreed with Judge Coe and found that a reasonable consumer could be misled by Dole's use of all natural on products that contain two synthetic acids. So that was the essence of the Ninth Circuit's rulings. Can we tease out a couple parts of that just a bit more? Why, in the panel's opinion, was it difficult um, such that this class should be decertified, the damages class? Um, Why was it difficult to assess damages across the whole class? Do you sort of think about it? It seems like the plaintiffs are generally in the same position where they buy this particular food product. It's labeled in a certain way that could potentially be misleading. um, And so seems their damages could be somewhat similar. Why is that not enough for this class to be certified? Because under governing law, the plaintiff needs to come up with a damage model that makes um, the ability to compute damages um, consistent and on a class-wide basis. Otherwise, you have the issue of uh, individual issues predominating because you need to calculate each plaintiff, each putative class member's damages on an individual basis. And here, the court found that determining the price, the Ninth Circuit found that determining the price premium, which the Ninth Circuit found was the appropriate measure of damages for each plaintiff would require individual inquiries. And that was the reason why the Ninth Circuit agreed with the district court that at least based on these facts, it was inappropriate to uh, certify a damages class and that the, the trial court ultimately made the correct decision decertifying that class as to the damages. So those individual inquiries would sort of be along the lines of to what extent did you, in fact, rely on the label saying all natural or, you know, were there one of any other reasons why you might have purchased the food? Correct. And and how you individually were harmed based on um, uh, paying a price premium for the product that was uh, d- did not give you the value that you sought because it was advertised as all natural and um, without uh, taking into consideration the two synthetic acids. Sure. Okay. And that, that price premium point seems to be an important part of the ruling. Also, I believe the plaintiff had hoped to achieve damages that would compensate him for sort of the, the entire price paid for the product. But the, the price premium um, damage is, is a, quite a bit smaller, correct? It is. And I think, you know, this is probably um, one of the more significant aspects of the opinion. Although it's not a published opinion, it will certainly provide some guidance in these type of cases down the road. Uh, the price premium, the, the plaintiffs are always looking for something in the nature of um, restitution, the full value of the price, or even pursue a theory of disgorgement. Here, the Ninth Circuit found that the appropriate uh, damages theory would be price premium, which is the difference between what a consumer paid and what that consumer would have paid without the all-natural label. And the Ninth Circuit held that the addition of these synthetic acids doesn't make the product worthless, 
So a full refund model would effectively be a windfall to the plaintiffs and not be appropriate. But as you say, there were portions of the lower court's ruling that were reversed, and so this lawsuit can proceed on uh, the mislabeling and uh, misleading claims. Why uh, did the panel believe that the um, the trial court got this one wrong on, on those points? Well, according to the Ninth Circuit, um, a reasonable consumer certainly could be misled by Dole's use of all-natural on products when those products, in fact, contain these two synthetic acids. And so, although um, Brazil um, couldn't proceed on a class-wide basis as to damages with respect to that claim, the court, uh, the Ninth Circuit, found that Brazil certainly could proceed on his individual claim for deceptive advertising. In addition to seeking certification on a class-wide basis, as we discussed, with respect to the, uh, the injunctive relief class. So uh, at the end of the day, the Ninth Circuit simply disagreed with the district court and found that by labeling its fruit products all natural when it contained these two synthetic uh, ingredients, um, a trier of fact could determine that Brazil was misled, um, and therefore the individual claim could be uh, pursued by Brazil. Maybe just briefly, in its opinion, the, the panel seemed to give sort of two discrete rationales for why it was overturning the, the trial court on this point, one that a reasonable consumer could be misled by the all-natural label, and also because those two acids, the citric and ascorbic acids, are, are not natural. Um, is there any meaningful difference between those two bases for the um, the reversal, they seem to sort of basically say something similar. Yeah, I think they're, uh, they're, they're interrelated. I mean, the plaintiff at the end of the day needs to show both. Uh, according to the Ninth Circuit, a product uh, might not be all natural if it has synthetic ingredients. And um, the evidence the plaintiff proposed to offer, in this case, the label, his testimony that he's deceived, you know, dull consumer surveys, um, FDA's informal definition of natural and food labels, all that evidence might be enough to show that the product is not all natural. But I view the two rationales as interrelated in, in that respect. You need one to prove the other. You wrote a, a client alert regarding this ruling and suggested that this case was um, not terribly full of merit. Um, I take it then that you might disagree with the panel's holding on this point. Why do you think that... Uh, that this outcome was incorrect, how would you have uh, ruled on, on this opinion? Were you uh, the appellate panel? Well, I'm not sure I would have come out differently. When I say seemingly baseless, what we mean by that is that it just seems really unlikely that many consumers um, would have changed their behavior if the product was not labeled all natural hmm. or they knew that these two uh, acids were added. It's a really tough burden for the plaintiff, um, and it's it's something that's just highly speculative in the absence of a really exhaustive consumer survey. Um, and so that's why I said it's it's a you know seemingly baseless uh, a claim. Sure. So then, in a context like this, where it may seem somewhat unlikely that these consumers, in fact, were misled or, or persuaded to buy this this particular food on the basis of that all-natural label. The fact that the panel is saying it should survive summary judgment, is that particularly concerning to defendants like Dole that, that label food in, in these certain ways? Um, as an attorney that might advise companies like that, what's the important note to give regarding this ruling in terms of you know, the sorts of cases that now could survive that, that stage of litigation? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, no doubt... Um, Brazil's claim is nowhere near what it once was when he filed this suit. Now he's only proceeding on an individual basis and not with respect to class-wide damages. I mean, I think given the small amount at stake now with respect to the individual claim, this only becomes concerning um, if plaintiffs in the future can come up with a way to measure the price premium on a class-wide basis. It's something that they have not been able to accomplish yet. I mean, there is a case before the Ninth Circuit coming up where perhaps additional guidance will be uh, provided by the Ninth Circuit. This is in the Brasino uh, suit 
mm-hmm. that uh, is is currently pending uh, with respect to what it will take in order to establish a methodology that's um, on price premium that um, would be sufficient to uh, provide damages on a class-wide basis. But we haven't seen anything like that yet. Um, you know, guidance in the future for companies like this, uh, I think there has to be concern about this aspect of the opinion dealing with all natural and marketing or labeling products as all natural. Uh, if any of the ingredients are synthetic, separate and apart from the difficulty plaintiffs have in establishing class-wide damages, there's still potential exposure um, in terms of the manner in which the products are labeled, which, you know, is not good for the, uh, certainly goodwill of, of the company when it's being accused of mislabeling its products. You also mentioned in the client alert that there's some uncertainty as to what exactly might be deemed misleading by the different regulations that might apply here, which in reading the Ninth Circuit opinion um, seems to be somewhat sparse. There's some FDA guidelines that aren't necessarily binding that play in here. Um, Do you think there could be some more regulatory clarity in this regard? Do you think there needs to be? What uh, do you think it it would be if if additional regulations or policy uh, were to be published? Well, certainly there could be a clarification um, from the FDA coming down the pike as to what exactly all natural is. They could, the FDA could be coming up with a definition right now. Um, you know, there's litigation over that. And earliest this year, the FDA did ask for public comments on how to define uh, natural, but so far the FDA hasn't provided a definition. Uh, an FDA definition of quote, natural, would certainly help guide litigants in the courts in the future. Perhaps one last one. There seems to be, you know, obviously some positives and negatives for both sides of this litigation. On the plaintiff's side, their case can go forward. Um, cases like this in the future could go forward. But the fact that the, the decertification ruling was upheld signifies that plaintiffs will have to bring a, a more robust class-wide damages calculation, as you say, um, on the defense side, though, obviously, it's a negative um, that, as I said, the, this case gets to go forward. Do you think um, in the future we'll see, as a result of this case, potentially more or, or less cases of this nature brought? Well, it's, 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 it's hard to predict. I mean, the opinion itself is unpublished, meaning, you know, future litigants can't cite to it as precedent, but it's still an important decision because it appears to signal how the Ninth Circuit will analyze whether foods labeled all natural um, are uh, misleading, uh, particularly if they contain the um, type of uh, synthetic ingredients that uh, were in Dole's products. Um, I, I think the next step for the plaintiff's bar is to try and design a damages model that can measure the price premium on a class-wide basis. Uh, until they figure that out, courts likely won't certify damage classes. Um, I, I doubt whether this opinion itself is going to be a deterrent to the filing of uh, future cases, nor do I think this decision um, signals an opening up of the floodgates for more and more cases. Um, uh, so in that respect, you know, I think the decision is not quite as significant as people might thought it be. The court didn't address ascertainability. It didn't specifically say what needs to uh, be included in a uh, damages model in order to satisfy the court. Damages could be calculated on a class-wide basis. Um, but nonetheless, I think the decision is still uh, important because of what the Ninth Circuit did say in terms of reversing the, the district court, it's granting a summary judgment, um, finding that, you know, in this particular instance, the way in which Dole labeled its product as all natural um, could potentially uh, give rise to a claim uh, if a fact finder found that consumers were, were misled. Uh, well, it certainly sounds like future developments will, will occur in, in these types of litigation, and, and this case will will have um, some bearing upon those developments, certainly. Mr. Neil Martyr, 
partner with Aiken Gump. Thanks for stopping by to chat about the case with us this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. And with that, our program for October 21st, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Michael Singer of Kohalan, Corey, and Singer, and Mr. Neil Martyr of Aiken Gump. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that CLE credit can be yours for listening to this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I should also extend thanks to members of my production staff here, including Helen Enriquez, Ellen Ireland, Dominic Fricasa, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.